Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Bruno Fernandez Ruiz, co-founder and CTO of Nexar. We first met when he was leading Yahoo technical teams charged with delivering a variety of large-scale, real-time data products. His new company is helping build out critical infrastructure for the emerging transportation sector. In particular, they're building out the first vehicle-to-vehicle communication network, which I believe will be a critical component of not just the transportation sector, but smart cities in general. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Bruno Fernandez Ruiz, welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me here. It's always a pleasure uh, talking. Um, so, you, I, I've known you for a while. Back when uh, you were a senior fellow at Yahoo, doing a lot of things, including uh, running teams that were building uh, large-scale uh, data infrastructure that served machine learning in real time. So, how did you go from that world to the IoT space? Yeah, well, actually, it was kind of natural. Uh, me and my co-founder, Rancher, we we kind of both thinking, you know, maybe you remember some of the things I did at Yahoo had to do with, with running things at the edge. So we did this thing called cocktails and, and, and then uh, trying to push more compute onto the CDN. And, you know, around 2013, 2014, Ron and I started talking about could we apply all of these things that we're trying to do that to the real world, uh, where you have you know kind of real problems. I and mean, advertising and search were great. I think we both learned a lot uh, at Yahoo. But you know, I definitely felt if there's an opportunity now to apply a lot of these things that we're doing to to the real world, both you know big data being collected, a lot of the intuitions that we had around what makes a successful system built with machine learning that we knew from things like behavioral targeting at Yahoo, um, it, it kind of make total sense. So like, can we replicate the same thing on on the real world? And then we went looking for kind of pattern matching, right? We did not, I think, initially think about, hey, let's do something automotive, well, which is really what we're doing now in XR. But we started kind of exploring the space. We looked at, you know, home automation. We looked at smart cities in general. We looked at uh, manufacturing and medicine. And and I think we at some point we came across automotive and we went like, oh, this is fantastic. It has the same, it's truly big data, it's not like small data. I think, for example, things like fitness devices for the time being still still small data, for example. Uh, it was connected. We we had a chance to move driving data to the cloud, to the data center. It was something that users were assigning meaning to it. Um, so, you know, again, back to the example of manufacturing, if something fails, it's very hard to know what that failure happened. Whereas we drive in drivers at all the time telling us what's happening, the same as in the web search that, you know, a click is a direct proxy for engagement. Um, so, you know, I think we looking at that and automotive became very, very clear that it had all the things that we had done previously, but applied to, to a world problem that was evolving. 
We also saw that the compute capability on the phones was increasing. GPUs were there. You know, that was a big, big change in terms of what had been possible. Uh, back my last days at Yahoo, where we spent the last year really working with deep learning to run deep learning distributed in the data center. And, you know, Google did part of the same work with something called parameter servers that part of that research was on Alex Molat at CMU, uh, distributing deep learning across multiple machines and being able to push that as the disbelief system, you're familiar with it, and being able to push that now into the GPUs on phones and a distributed manner was like fascinating, right? Can we do that? Whether these were smartphones, which is where we started in the future, you know, these might be the cars themselves, embedded systems in the car. Uh, it might be pedestrians because pedestrians are also on the road. It might be cyclists. It might be traffic signs that are connected. It might be traffic lights. Um, so to us, that was GPU being there was a big, big thing that was now enabled, uh, enabling the technology to really move to solve a real problem. And, and the other trigger that we found technologically was LTE. Uh, right when we started looking at the problem, it was the transition between really 3G and 4G. Uh, LTE, Qualcomm was also talking back in the days around LTE Direct, so, which is the ability to really send messages within, confined to the cell, without having to be routed within the radio frequency, without having to be to routed back to the internet. And, you know, putting all these things together, we came across the notion of Nexar as, as a way to solve real-world problems around driving safety uh, selfishly today, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> which right, is, right, you right. know, we both have teenage or pre-teenage daughters. And we were like, you know, we kind of wait 20 years for autonomous vehicles to be in the road. Can we do something today? Uh, so, you know, a little bit selfishly is, you know, you go and, and you pick the technology you have and you put it on a phone. And, and that, was, that was really the beginning. So, um, actually, you know, uh, I thought for a while you, you two were going into the personal fitness space because I remember the last time I saw you, you were wearing a lot of these uh, uh, personal tracking devices. <laughs> so then, uh, but then you guys ended up in the automotive yeah, yeah. automotive space. So what uh, what exactly uh, does Nexar? What problem is Nexar trying to solve? So it's funny you mentioned the, the fitness. I still wear all those devices, and I still call it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a biomechanical engineer. Um, by hobby, um, one day maybe I'll, I'll do something about it. But um, no, seriously, on the on the automotive side. Um, so essentially, you know, think about it from first from a technology perspective. Imagine if every vehicle on the road, there are anywhere between 1.1, 1.2 billion vehicles on the planet. Uh, if any vehicle on the road was equipped with a transponder that allowed it to connect to a network and say, hey, here I am. This is where I'm going. This is how fast I've gone. This is where I've been in the last 10 seconds. This is where I think I'm going to be in the next 10 seconds. And you were sharing that with all the vehicles that are around you so that all these vehicles can predict and, and not kind of react, but proact to, to how they should behave in the road, right? So now you start solving for safety. You start solving for traffic congestion. You start solving for utilization of the road for pollution like there are many 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 problems that actually could solve it if you, if you remember as minority report as a movie at some point tom cruise kind of jumps onto some sort of van or, or like he, he gets on the road and then the car kind of aligns itself and all the cars are going parallel to each other the auto drive right so 
that's kind of the vision. Um, I think with autonomous vehicles on the road, that will be even more important because you'll have autonomous vehicles, you'll have humans sharing the road, and then how do these things uh, talk to each other? There was something actually starting last week in the UK. You might have seen it that the UK is now going to finance platooning experiments with tests with real trucks on the road. Um, and, and that technology to link them is basically this vehicle-to-vehicle. So we're trying to do is build that vehicle-to-vehicle network. You know, you can call it the ground traffic control, the equivalent to what happens in the air with, you know, when the radar technology and beaconing technology became available at some point, people said, well, we should probably connect to these things to be able to know where the planes are and tell them where to go, whereas the individual decisions are still taken either by the human pilot or by the autopilot. Um, but the issue with any network really is, you know, how do you bootstrap the network? Like the first guy who, who, who probably got a fax machine were like, you know, what do I do with a fax machine? Um, and together, everybody had a fax machine. I don't think fax machines were that useful for them as a network, but uh, there was a first use case for the fax machine, you know, which was really booking travel between like Sabre and American Airlines and the agencies. And then as more people were booking travel, then, you know, two banks are booking travel that realize, well, actually, we can send faxes to each other. So if you extrapolate the same thing here, what we're trying to do is we said, okay, can we build a simple application that delivers value to people for safety today? You know, you're familiar with the term advanced driver assistance systems. These are the kind of systems that you can find in your car, high-end car, normal luxury cars that will give you a warning because you're getting too close, a warning because there is a pedestrian crossing that you might not have seen, a warning because you're departure lane. So these are, they can be warning systems. Some of them are control systems. So you have things like automatic electronic braking or the much, much simpler adaptive cruise control that will keep the distance to the car in front of you. So, you know, what we thought is like, can we do that on a smartphone? Can we bring that to the masses as, as a way to bootstrap the network, right? Because the more people use that, then the more nodes will be with that vehicle to vehicle node. And then we can really start to bootstrap a network of connected vehicles that start protecting each other beyond the line of sight, which is really where vehicle-to-vehicle provides the advantage versus, let's say, a camera or, or a radar or a LiDAR machine. And then, you know, we started doing that, pushing that when the GPUs using the LT technology communicate, collecting a lot of data. We're on a road to really, in a path right now to commoditize technology is the realization after we came into the industry that as much as people talk, especially in the Valley, uh, you know, every car now nowadays gets sold has cameras, every car has these warning systems, but the reality is that in the planet, you know, there's, there's barely 2% of the vehicles that actually have these advanced driver assistance systems. And what's worse is, you know, if you look at new sales, depends on the country, but it's still two, 5% of vehicles get sold every year with these systems. So, you know, ADAS is still a luxury. ADAS is still on the top end. It's going to take many years until it trickles down to the basic models. Uh, it's still an optional package, which um, I, I think just you know, business-wise, it just doesn't make sense, right? Because if you look at the aviation industry and how the aviation industry evolved over the years, you don't select to fly American Airlines or Delta based on one being safer than the other. You don't select McDonald's versus Boeing versus Airbus because of the safety record or the particular uh, manufacturer. And that's because that industry has accepted that safety was not a feature they were selling. Whereas in the automotive industry, people still are selling safety. So you buy a $50,000 car and you've been offered a sound system for $2,000 and 
a safety package for $2,000, you're probably just going to put it on top because percentage-wise of your purchase, that's very small. But are you buying you know, $15,000, $17,000 and you have to make the same decision, still $2,000 for a sound system and $2,000 for a safety package, you're not going to do it. So that's, that's what we add. You know, our vision really is that network and our mission currently is like bring that ADAS, commoditized ADAS, bring it to the road, make it accessible to everybody uh, to the point that people don't need to think, I'm, am I going to spend $2,000, you know, for 10, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever it costs you to, to get the phone and maybe a camera connected. You should be up and running and it should be a no-brainer that, that you can be protected on the road. So what you're describing is one of these technical building blocks for the future of self-driving cars, which is what some people call the V2X communication, right? So vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure. So a couple of questions. First, I think some of the people in this space think that, well, maybe we don't need that, right? So maybe uh, we don't need vehicle to vehicle communication. Maybe we, we just have self-driving cars that are smart. And then secondly, you folks must be assembling a pretty cool data set around this uh, kind of technology that you've, uh, you're starting to deploy. Do we need it, right? So I think it's the, the first question. Um, and, and actually, there is some truth in that, honestly. Uh, the, the issue with vehicle-to-vehicle, specifically in the United States, is the NHTSA, which is the National Highway Transportation Agency, um, had, has been working for many years uh, since, you know, I think it's around 2004, 2005, on defining vehicle-to-vehicle. And one of the things they did is to take a technology, which is called the Daycrate Short-Range Communications, DSRC, Essentially, it's 802.11a repurposed with some channel adjustments for being able to work in an automotive environment, and that became the 802.11p. The issue is that when that was defined, uh, well, one of the issues that when that was defined back in the days, that the notion of you know autonomous vehicles and deep learning and computer vision, even right, was not mainstream. Was made in the labs, you know, Professor Hinder and I feel Stanley Kuhn were actually probably still playing with it, doing research, but. Nobody else really was in 2004 thinking about those problems. So vehicle to vehicle, it is true that in the close vicinity of the car, if you had cameras, you had LiDAR, you had radars, you have redundant systems, you could solve many of the same things that vehicle to vehicle tries to do in the short vicinity. But the issue is that as you move to beyond the line of sight, right, to look at level four and specifically level five automation, you're familiar with automation levels. So, you know, level four, it's a mission. Any control environment and level five is, is a mission that the car is able to do in any environment without a human intervening in the wheel at any particular point in time. Both of those levels basically require to be able to predict and, and proact and react beyond the line of sight, right? You need to drive better than a human being. If you drive like a human being, you're always going to need help. Uh, that's by definition because human beings go into collisions and crashes and you want that car not to crash. So one of the issues is that humans do not see across a corner. Humans do not see beyond cars. Humans get blocked by light. Humans get blocked by night, right? Fog. So there are many situations in which other autonomous technologies actually fail. And I think that's where vehicle-to-vehicle becomes both a necessary enablement technology for the true future of total automation, autonomous vehicles, but also as a redundant system for when that camera or for when that radar or that, you know, whatever other sensor, radio or vision-based sensors in the car fails. 
And I think people are really going to see that. Uh, you know, I don't think that many people have thought about this honestly because it, it's sort of been the the rulemaking has been stuck because it's very complex, involves many many players from telecommunications, automotive, states, regulate regulatory bodies, um, and it has a huge cost. Right, the, the bill, if it was passed, it will cost several hundreds of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy alone not to talk about the cost that it would have to the rest of the planet as a side effect of the, the automatic automakers having to, to build for those standards. And we think that cellular technology, it's, it's a much cheaper way, a much more modern way of solving that. Uh, so basically, you know, I think summarizing the, the, what your question is, I think vehicle to vehicle, it's a necessary technology implementation wise saying that it has to be Wi-Fi based or even it has to be cellular based, right? It could be Bluetooth based in the future. Uh, I think it's, that's the flow that has existed and probably why this has not moved much. We think that we can do something meaningful today because there are already 1.2 billion, over 1.2 billion mobile phones in the world that could help solve this problem without having to deploy, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of new chipsets to future cars that you know, you will only reach necessary penetration in 2025 if you were to go for new vehicles only. So that that's really our view on that and what we create in the company. Now, on the data, obviously, right? So because we are driving right now, we sit in the network, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of people who download these things for totally free on the Apple Store and Google Play. Uh, we also focus with commercial drivers. So these are, you know, people who have a commercial driving license, or who have, uh, you know, they work for Uber, for example, they work for Lyft, they're, you know, a handyman that's a plumber. Uh, so we work with all these people to really make them be safer. And the, the application itself is designed to collect data. It's not just designed to warn the user, but it's designed to collect data, right? And that really goes back to the philosophy of the company on the study. I was talking about search, right? Which is, if I go back, to my days, very, very early days at Yahoo before the, the Yahoo transition search to Bing, you know, one of the things that was very clear is that we were tremendously ambitious to index the web as much of the web all the time and as frequent as possible, right? So coverage, freshness were extremely, extremely critical to ensure relevance on the results. So I think that worked well because when you crawling pages and where people are searching for pages, you know all the search queries and you can collect the search queries and then you know how people react to the search queries. So you know where they click on, they know when they bounce, they know how much time they spend on the landing page. So you know the whole flow of interaction of the user and you always collect that, right? So one of the things that we were extremely keen when we build it is if we want to build a machine learning algorithm that really emulates how drivers react and how drivers should act, we need to have as many of those miles of driving recorded as possible. So we are recording the video, we are recording the acceleration, the deceleration, the steering of the vehicle. All of that data is being moved to the cloud. Now, you know, you might say, well, hold on a minute, right? How, how do you do that? Because, you know, if you drive for an hour and you record, let's say, at 720p, 30 frames per second, that's about a gigabyte. And most people on their Wi-Fi connection, if we did that, they will be like, oh, my God, guys, you know, what are you doing? You're bringing down my network at home or at work. So we developed a way to really handpick what I 
I would call the interesting stuff. Uh, but the idea is, you know, if I drive a thousand times over a freeway with no traffic jams, then the thousand and one time that I go on that freeway, there is very little new information that that gives me. So there's not much point in me doing that. Now, if I go again on that freeway and it's nighttime and I've never been at nighttime, then that has a tremendous, tremendous amount of value for me to collect it. So the, the system that we have developed is basically selectively picking information and data and video out of the field to optimize for that reduced network capacity that exists between the edge device and the cloud. And we optimize, as, as time goes by, right, and the models get better, the data that we transfer is more and more coronary cases. So, you know, maybe we start with driving in Manhattan and then driving in Manhattan, looking at cyclists and then driving in Manhattan, looking at cyclists at nighttime and driving in Manhattan, looking at cyclists at nighttime in a snowy day. So that curve of progression basically, and this is just one example, right? I think this, the scope... It sounds like there's some network effects too, right? So it's kind of like, I guess, you know, in, in the case of maps, you can drive on a pre-mapped road, but while you're driving, you're also comparing the road and possibly updating the map. For people, people are doing the map. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what they would do. I think that the difference with driving cognition... Yeah, in your case, uh, there, there's some value into, in updating your data too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, totally. So we do, we do that, that's beyond the driving behavior, right? The driving policy or learning how to drive, we do actually look at the road. So there is a benefit into uh, detecting, you know, have I been here before? Has something changed? So to give you an example, that's actually very good. I bring it up is if you're driving and a right turn is permitted and you see cars have gone by and suddenly one day you start realizing that nobody's turning right, you want to get video footage for that intersection to understand what is going on, right? Maybe there is a work screw, they have lifted a manhole, they're working in the close the lane, and that right turn is not legal. So totally true, there are transient changes to infrastructure that require mapping updates that are going to live for a few hours that we need to know and that any autonomous company needs to know, and for which you need to have this system of interestingness at the edge, that you cannot collect everything. But you need to understand what is what has changed or what do I not know about. You know, another example is we started doing garbage tracks detection um, because garbage tracks in Manhattan basically cause a lot of traffic jams. Um, and if you get stuck behind it, you're stuck behind it for quite a while. So one of the things we started to do is detect garbage tracks and the model that we built was working well and, and then started snowing. That was, you know, January, February this year. And it was, was snowing in New York, like, like sometimes that. And suddenly, the, 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 the accuracy, the confidence of them all, like we started going down and we're detecting still the tracks, but the mall says, hey, I think this is 50% or 55% probability of being a track. You go like, well, that's not good enough, but let me do something. I think that's interesting that you are not, you're, you think you're finding a track, but you're not sure you're finding a garbage track. Let me bring that to the cloud. And then through the cloud, we run all the analysis, including a human in the loop to fine tune the mall and then improve the mall. And that ability to, to find interesting stuff at the edge is really what makes it a true learning system. So back to the Google and the Yahoo search examples, right, is you always, you're not trying to do brute force everything. You're always going down the tail to the next problem and to the next problem and to the next problem. And here it's exactly the same. You know, how many times have you seen a cow crossing the road? Well, if you're in the U.S., probably none, but in India, probably all the time. How many times do you see a three-wheel cramped? crossing the road? How many times do you see a monkey 
crossing the road? How many times do you see a car driving in the opposite direction on the lanes that shouldn't be in the motorway? So these are examples that happen in the real world. And if an autonomous vehicle has not been trained or doesn't know what to do with that data, then we have a problem. And that's fundamentally, as a company, what I think the data we collected so far is special. You know, through this network of drivers today, we, we are collecting about 100 million miles of driving per year. You know, to put that in context, that's probably an order of magnitude bigger than, than anybody out there from a video perspective. And w- this, this data set contains over 5 million what we call corner cases, collisions, danger situations, which are the true edge cases where you want to develop your algorithms for. Develop an algorithm for doing adaptive cruise control and avoiding obstacles. Okay, that's that's cool. That's the first step. What really matters is back to the example, right? How do you deal with the cyclists at nighttime in Manhattan when it's snowing? That that's that's the edge case that you need to learn from. And that's that's the data that we have that I think makes us special for an ability to develop algorithms right now. So let, let me ask you this as someone who's not in the space, and I imagine a lot of our listeners aren't uh, into the weeds of the uh, car industry. So frequently we hear people and companies saying, I have so many miles driving da- of driving data. This other company has fewer miles than me. So uh, Bruno, at some point, is there a, such a thing as diminishing returns? In other words, if I have, let's say, I'm just going to throw out a number there. Let's say if I have 10,000 cars driving around Manhattan, is that enough? So who cares if the other company has 100,000 cars? So is there such a point where there's diminishing returns even for big data? Mm-hmm. No, they, they are diminishing returns. That's totally true. However, more data is still better data. And, you know, a way to understand it is that you can build an algorithm for pedestrian detection that is 99.99%, which means that once every 0.001, you're killing somebody once every 100,000 times. Or if you will, with 99.99, you're killing, you know, once every 10 million times. If you look at it from that perspective, like, it doesn't matter how good your algorithm, you're always going to kill people. So if you could build a better algorithm... Would you do it? And then the second question is, if you have more data, does more data help you build a better algorithm? And the answer to the latter is also true, right? So you might have seen a paper that Google Research published back in July where they said that if they augmented the training data by millions, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, 500 million examples, they still saw that the, the, the quality of the models that was being built was still increasing even when that data had noise in it. It does not increase linearly, to your point, right? The, the return of having more data is not linear. It's actually logarithmic, but it still makes sense to do it because going from a 99.9 to a 99.99% is actually a big deal when you're talking about human lives. You alluded to this earlier, but uh, you are collecting a lot of data, specifically even high-quality video data. So, And then you said that obviously you, you can't upload all of that data because that would bring the network down. So how exactly do you make the selection as to what data to upload? So what we do is on the phone today, we because we operate on a smartphone, we're able to cache locally a lot of data. We share some of the data with the server around positioning, around acceleration, rotation, steering with the server side. 
Also, we share, for example, things that we detect on the phone. So not the actual raw frame, but actually it's been detected. And then between the server and the device, we define what makes interesting. Uh, what is interesting, we then cut it out of the full video. And uh, whenever it's possible, which is normally when you get to Wi-Fi, then we upload it. So instead of uploading that one hour driving one gigabyte, when you get Wi-Fi, you're only going to upload you know, 15 or 20 megabytes of data, which is totally feasible for most people on Wi-Fi. And even if you wanted, you could still, you could also do it in cellular right now with a lot of people are starting to have unlimited data plans for, for cellular data. So is that, that, that's a collaborative system between server and the client and really optimizing for finding interesting data, as I was talking about earlier. The other question, of course, is privacy and security. Uh, what systems do you have in place to protect people's privacy? And I guess, you know, someone listening out there might say, oh, so that means uh, can can law enforcement subpoena this data <laughs> at some point down the road, right? So That's a valid question and something we care about deeply. You know, I, I think, uh, the, the, first of all, there is uh, an even more fundamental question, which is, you know, in the United States, at least, the road is public. It's public domain. So uh, I think there's a question that people like Jerry Jarvis have been thinking about for a long time about this notion of publicness, right, and and the value of, of making certain data public. So if somebody gets shot on the road, uh, or somebody's walking down a, a sidewalk and gets shot and you have footage of that, should you have the ability to actually hide it if, if that's uh, incriminating somebody? And uh, probably the answer in any legal system in the world is that actually will be a crime to hide that footage. So I, I think there is a bigger argument to be had there around the utility of having evidence of what's happening on the road when people are potentially driving with two-ton Weapons, and we've seen those attacks now. You know, in in, in London, in in Barcelona, most recently, uh, where people are actually using their vehicles as as a weapon. Uh, but putting all of that aside, right? And um, when we started the company, one thing we thought about it was exactly that, right? Which is, it, it's a difference between bringing public value and and becoming a weapon of an authoritarian state. What we're saying is actually. The data that we have helps citizens defend themselves sometimes against an authoritarian regime or sometimes, you know, isolated incidents where maybe the police is, is overreaching. We have a couple of cases, for example, in um, San Francisco with Lyft drivers, uh, Uber drivers who, you know, as you know, sometimes the, the social stratus that they come, they, they, they're working hard to make ends meet. Uh, they drive at night and sometimes the police stop them and say, hey, you know, you did a California roll, you didn't stop at the red light. And the driver will go like, nope, I have evidence, you can sit here and you can actually get the police to stand back and let you go away because you did not commit that offense versus not having the evidence and, and getting a ticket. So I think we've seen that a little bit from people who are using the technology as a way to really defend their, their civil liberties. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, what we have in place and, uh, it's, is that we do not want to be that big brother anyway. Uh, we do not work by definition with any uh, police authority in the world. Uh, we do not share data with, with federal authorities. 
we do make sure that all the access to the data is fully logged in compliance with like laws in California. And one of the things that you know obviously happens is that the data itself uh, has layers of encryption to make sure that uh, you know we can just get hold of it by by accident. And actually, the interesting thing, right, that I will extrapolate your question, which is something that we have not solved, I think the industry at large has not solved, which is if you train a model, a deep learning model, and you distribute the model somehow, and people get hold of those models and start reversing engineering the models, right, you start having a problem of differential privacy, where you could potentially reverse engineer the data that was used for creating the model and then figure out things about the people that contributed those videos to train the model. Um, and for that, we don't have an answer, but honestly, I don't think anybody in the world has an answer for that. We are spending research to to solve that. I don't think anyone has an answer because no one knows how the deep learning networks work. <laughs> yeah. So we're thinking about it. We we also, you know, consider even more, you know, beyond all these beyond all these ethical questions around public state and public state and authoritarian and authoritarian. I think that there is something more practical with this startup. I don't want to be in court replying to federal subpoenas all the time. So we, you know, one of the things that we definitely want to be is in a space where we are putting in place all the measures so that even if there's a subpoena, that subpoena would have to go against the, the final individual, the, the actual owner of the data rather than us. Uh, so if you, know, if you want the encryption keys, go and talk to them, not me. What do you think about recent research around things like federated learning, where uh, uh, you can train models without actually centralizing all, or, or aggregating all of the data? Yeah, these are it's fascinating because you know, as you know, I've been <laughs> I've been thinking about that problem and actually playing with that problem for many years now. The the first time. The first time that, I, that anything like that was done was um, was with, you know, if it's a form of asynchronous stochastic gradient descent. Stochastic gradient descent is just one of the techniques for basically finding a solution to a deep learning problem, uh, minimizing the error. And there was some research back in the days, many years ago, actually, over 10 years ago now, around how you could have two different GPUs uh, compute, have them all, have them all, or have the samples, have the samples, and then once every while exchange part of the parameters. And the issue back then was that exchanging part of the parameters between both of them was expensive because there was a lot of data to be to be shared. And as time has gone by, people have done more and more research for being able to exchange less and less data between these nodes. So instead of being two GPUs, now you could have four GPUs and eight GPUs that exchange only part of that. So these GPUs now don't need to be in the same box. They don't even need to be in the same data center. Because you limited the amount of data that flows between them, you can put them on the ground and distribute them. So I, I think this is working right now for problems where uh, the parameter space, the number of basically numbers that you have to train in that model is still limited. Uh, for large models, it's difficult to do that because still the data that gets transferred between one or the other is too much. Or what happens too is that you end up with significant selection bias. So a vehicle that is, in this case, an automotive. So if you were doing this for automotive for computer vision, it could be that a vehicle that is driving mostly at night gets data that is very different than a vehicle that drives mostly at day. And the feature that each model starts 
picking up as interesting, they become very, very different. It's very difficult for those models to then be merged together on the parameters. So there are some issues around that for which I think, you know, computer vision is not a problem yet for which this is applicable. But problems around sensor data and stream and anomaly detection, I think it's totally, totally suitable. Sensor networks, I I think we're going to see it fast. This is actually coming onto the field faster and faster. And it's just it's just a matter of time when we have availability of 100 megabit cellular networks across the place that we'll see that this also probably comes into the vision space. Speaking of privacy, actually, so uh, there's also some research around maybe we can just do all of our uh, analytics on uh, data that's encrypted. Have you heard of some of these things? Not in XR. We did actually play a little bit with behavioral models. Uh, there was some research from Microsoft back in 2012 when I was looking at this problem that did encrypt the models, did encrypt the data, and then there was a handshake that basically the user on the flight says, I'm granting that model access to this fact, and then the model doesn't see the raw fact, but it sees the inference of the fact. So the, the idea was basically, right, is Google or Yahoo don't need to build the full profile or own the full profile. They become data clearinghouses for user profiles. And then advertising systems will not be able to know everything about you, but just be able to tell, well, you belong to that behavioral category X, Y, Z. So that was the last thing I saw in terms of encryption of both the profile and the model so that neither the model provider nor the user, because, you know, you could ship the models to the phone or to the website, to the web page, but then, you know, you would lose that IP. <laughs> you share basically IP with, with the browser, or you can share the user profile with the advertiser, in which case you're leaking user profiles to the advertiser. So that that's still a big problem in advertising, which is how to ensure that you're not leaking data. And that was some really cool research done out of Microsoft that we, we worked a little bit to at Yahoo. Um, but in the context of driving, we have not we have not worked yet with encryption of models. I think it's too early for us. And we also, you know, we're running very tight on the phone. Getting these networks to run the phone is still bleeding edge. Uh, we worked with with Qualcomm on their Snapdragon neural processing engine. Uh, we released that actually at the same time they released that publicly their, their SDK. And it was a lot of hard work. I mean, it's a fantastic enabling technology, being able to use the GPU and the DSP to run the models. But you still need to be very smart about what layers do you put, what layers do you take away, what how do you quantize, how you represent data, uh, do you need full floating representation, do you bring less? And even then, you know, the GPU or it's running hot, it's consuming power. So being able to on top of that add encryption, I think for us is is not something that we can afford yet. Maybe on the server side is something that we could do, but we don't have a need for it yet. On the client, it will be tremendously important eventually. So in, in closing, I, I want to have you uh, do some uh, prognostication and speculation here as for uh, our closing segment. So looking ahead five years, uh, you're now gathering uh, a lot of vehicle-to-vehicle data. What will cities look like, specifically cities that implement some sort of smart city program five years or 10 years from now? Wow, it's hard to have a crystal ball, right? But I guess that's uh, why I trained to be an entrepreneur. I I think the the biggest thing that we're going to see is that the growth of the economy in the cities right now is is blocked by 
at the end, traffic and congestion. There are many different ways that are being tried across the world for solving that from taxation, congestion pricing in London to regulation around, you know, you can drive six days out of seven in Beijing, curbside management, what what you can park and what you can't park, like in New York City. So I think across the world, people are trying to convince to kind of patch the problem, right, address the problem. But um, the reality is that A, not every city can build enough transit to be able to afford to limit private cars going there. It's very difficult to build new infrastructure in cities, um, both transit, but also just basically roads. So I think what we're going to see in 10 years' time, I don't know beyond 10, but in 10 years' time, we'll see is that the current road infrastructure that is in cities will be utilized much, much better. Today, the, the road capacity per lane is about 2,200 vehicles per hour. Uh, with automation, NITSA predicts that we could go to somewhere around 3,000, 3,500 vehicles per lane per hour. And with vehicle-to-vehicle communication, we can increase that capacity to over 8,000 vehicles per lane per hour. So I think what you will see is that the control of the vehicle on the cities will progressively go away so that your car can be bumper to bumper to everybody else around you and that capacity of the lane really goes away. And if you actually you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? When when automotive started, it was the same roads that the horses and, and, and you know the, the chariots and whatever had been using, um, but it were the same roads that it's only when traffic started to grow that the whole notion of transportation planning started to occur and building new roads and defining rules for how you behave in the roads appear. Then traffic continued to grow, and at some point people realized, well, it's not enough to have more infrastructure. Now we need to regulate infrastructure, and and like traffic lights appear, right? So we went from microscopic regulation to something that is called mesoscopic, which is you know at the intersection level, the traffic light level, which is how we operate today. There's still friction, right, between a red cycle and a green cycle. People accelerate, they brake, and there's a lot of inefficiencies in the city, and then. The next step, really, which I think will happen in the next 10 years, is that we will have to give that, the same way we give the freedom around the road where we go in, the same way that we give the freedom in terms of, you know, when do we stop? Now, the next thing that we're going to have to give our freedom in the cities around how we drive, the microscopic decisions that we make around acceleration and braking, so that we can actually manage the, the roads um, I think that will happen. Now, whether it's through vehicle to vehicle, there is through another technology, I think it's to be seen. The benefit of vehicle to vehicle, I think what are we doing? Vehicle to anything, vehicle to X, is you know, you're solving many other problems on the side. You're solving public safety, you're solving uh, parking, you're solving um, pollution. You are enabling the city to solve many things for which otherwise would have to deploy fixed infrastructure. You look at London, London has anywhere between 3 million and 5 million cameras deployed. Uh, and is you know, being referenced as one of the examples of the world that is probably leading that, that smart city revolution. If anything happens in London within 24 hours, it's possible for the authorities to really go back to the footage. Um, but those 3 million cameras need to be installed, they need to be fixed, even at a 1% failure rate, that's 30,000 cameras per year. So you need people to maintain it. You, you know, it's, it's actually a significant amount of money that most cities in the world cannot afford. And I think that's for a vehicle-to-vehicle solution that is crowdsourced, where people will have these cameras recording the road to protect themselves. They're also, as a side effect, helping 
have that network of cameras in the road that are becoming that tool for cities to become smart. So we'll see, right? Um, <laughs> time will tell. As you're talking, I just realized, you know, because one of, one of, of course, uh, living here in the in Silicon Valley, uh, one of the things I read about sometimes is uh, are, are these flying cars. But as you were talking, I'm going, actually, uh, for flying cars, we actually need vehicle-to-vehicle communication. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll be complete chaos up there. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, it's back to example, air traffic control is something that people understand, right? And the air, the towers coordinate with each other, and you have radars, you have beacons, and, and it's the same, right? So you think if the cars were to move three meters up in space, we know we would need air traffic control for the vehicle, for, for the cars. So now think about it and bring them down three meters back to the road and it goes like, why don't you need it on the road? That, that's actually a fantastic intuition, right? If you do flying cars, if you stop them flying, you still need a traffic control. So this has been great. Thank you, Bruno. Well, thanks to you, Ben. It's always a pleasure. You can follow Bruno Fernandez Ruiz on Twitter at Olympum. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.